0: and welcome to the first podcast in our series, The Idea of Greece. This seven-part podcast is produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation's History Committee. We're a group of volunteers who love history and love telling stories. If you're listening, I suspect you do too. I'm your host, Georgia Balogiannis. This podcast series is under the auspices of the Greece 2021 Committee, which is spearheading the global commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution. We're so pleased to have partnered with Agape Greek Radio, our sponsor for this podcast. Today, we are speaking about the origins of the 1821 Revolution. I'm joined by Professor Sakis Gekas. Sakis is the Hellenic Heritage Foundation Chair in Modern Greek History at York University in Toronto. Hello, Sakis, and welcome.
1: Hello, Georgette.
0: It's been 200 years. So my question is, what is the meaning of the Greek Revolution today? Why should we care?
1: I think there's uh, many reasons why uh, we should care. First of all, the importance of the event itself at the time. It uh, reshaped uh, relations between the Ottomans and European uh, states, it also reverberated as an event from Latin America to Russia. Uh, it is now considered by historians as definitely a European, a Mediterranean, and indeed, for some people, a global event. People from uh, the United States to, of course, the edge of the Ottoman Empire were uh, interested in, uh, uh, desperate to hear what was the outcome of uh, these events. The second reason is because it is a foundational event for in Greek history. You know, we have two, let's say, foundational uh, pillars, uh, antiquity and uh, 1821. I think the 200 years anniversary is a great opportunity to reflect um, as uh, historians, but also as a general public, uh, and gain historical awareness of this very critical moment uh, in our past. I think it's also important for us in here in a city in North America with a substantial uh, Greek population to engage in this sort of, exercise in public history, and uh, try and reflect uh, on it uh, as, as much as possible.
0: I remember um, being taught in Greek school, as most kids um, in the diaspora are forced to, to attend on Saturday, that um, the Greek Revolution was pretty basic. It either started or ended on March 25th, and there were, you know, two main characters, the Greeks who were, you know, the good guys and the Turks who were the bad guys. Guys, you know the enemy and it was the end wrapped up pretty and uh and presented to us that way but just hearing what you've said <laughs> uh on the impact of this uh, of this revolution there's a lot more to that narrative why do you think i was taught if you could even answer this why do you think i was taught greek history the way i was Simplified.
1: I think the, the, I think the uh, uh, aims and objectives of teaching uh, Greeks in the diaspora uh, a few years ago, maybe even uh, today, are not uh, that different from uh, those uh, of teaching uh, uh, Greek children in, in Greece. I mean, I was also taught about this, you know, hugely important event. You know, you grow up in a classroom and they're still lined up with portraits of the heroes of the Greek revolution. Uh, I'm not sure many other countries do that. Uh, So the reason why this was often told, I hope it's not anymore, I don't think it is, as a story of uh, police and thieves, you know, bad guys and good guys, uh, was obviously a caricature. Uh, So I think it was uh, probably because there had to be uh, what people understood at the time as creating a national consciousness. And in an environment such as the Canadian one or another or any other Uh, immigration uh, sort of country, then this was perceived by some people as absolutely essential to build, you know, to shield people with historical awareness by highlighting only what was positive, so to speak, about uh, this great uh, event.
0: So I can speak from experience. When I was in Greek school, I was taught that Greeks were oppressed in the Ottoman Empire. Is that a true statement of fact?
1: Well, there's certainly uh, various forms of oppression uh, that uh, second-class subjects of the empire, such as the Christians, uh, suffered. But uh, not all uh, subjects, second-class subjects were oppressed equally, so to speak. Uh, Wealth and power and influence mattered a lot in the Ottoman Empire, at least in the years, let's say, in the couple of decades before the revolution, especially in places like the ones we're going to talk about in more detail, uh, such as the Peloponnese, Uh, and north of there, where the revolution really took hold. So religious oppression is not uh, the case. Um, There were cases of uh, forced but also voluntary conversion during Ottoman expansion in the Balkans, so in the 15th, 16th century, let's say. But people, there was was this pact, this agreement between the sultan and his uh, Christian, but also Jewish uh, subjects as well, that as long as they uh, obey uh, the rule of the sultan, he will protect them. So effectively, what happens is not a form of oppression by the sultan and the authority, but a form of oppression in the, in the sense of lack of security of property and life that seems to be prevalent before uh, the revolution. And this is what drives many Christians to consider an alternative form of rule.
0: So people were allowed to practice their religion during
1: Ottoman yes, of rule? Course. Of course, this is this is since the Sultan uh, Muhammad II, uh, the Conqueror, as is known, uh, took over Constantinople in 1453.
0: <laughs> Hence, why we have churches and monasteries in what is known as present-day Greece.
1: Precisely, precisely, and they also serve an economic function as well. They collect taxes, they collect funds. Uh, they uh, are also part of a network uh, of uh, education. You know, this is where. Uh, in the monasteries in the Athos Peninsula, for example, um, centers of education uh, developed.
0: We know Greece in one way, sea sand and its overall beauty. But what did Greece look like in 1821? Set the scene for me.
1: To answer this, we go to Professor Andonis Hadzikidiakou, Teaching Fellow of Ottoman and Turkish History at Panion University in Athens. And Don, hello. Great to have you with us.
2: Great to be with you and thank you for the invitation.
1: Help us to understand what the area we know as Greece today looked like uh, back then, before the revolution.
2: Well, the obvious starting point would be to say that it was a very, very different place to what it is now, for, for good reason, uh, because it was part of a very different world. But if we start thinking of Greece as a geography, uh, we have to start by by imagining that Greece did not have the boundaries that it has today, and no one expected or was imagined this kind of a geography that it has now. The revolution started in in various places. There were many parts of modern-day Greece where you, uh, you had a lot of other populations as well, uh, Muslims or other ethnicities of the Balkans. And there was no clear idea of where Greece started and where Greece ended. The very, uh, imagination of who is Greek was also much more uh, vague and much more different to what we imagine today. And uh, to start thinking about what did exist uh, there, it was obviously part of the of the Ottoman Empire, a very different state structure, an imperial regime uh, which was based on one of the many basic premises of the Ottoman uh, administration was the superiority of Muslims over non-Muslims. But even this very basic premise did not mean that it was prohibitive for non-Muslims to rise in uh, society. There were some exceptions, uh, very important, rare though they may have been, there were some rare exceptions, uh, whereby uh, non-Muslims of poor peasant background would even be able to reach uh, the position of uh, the Grand Vizier at the top of the Ottoman uh, hierarchy, something that uh, would have been unimaginable in uh, early modern Europe, for example, given the very strict uh, social uh, boundaries.
0: Did people identify by their nationality or would it be ethnicity since there was no Greece or Turkey?
2: Well, first of all, what we understand today with the term nationality, with the term nation, was again very, very different at the time. Even within the 20th century, we have multiple definitions of the nation. Imagine in the 19th or even before. Ethnicity I think it is a much more uh, suitable term to define uh, collective identities, but religion, I think, was the most clear uh, religious identity, was the more clear collective way of identifying people, and in the case of who later became. Uh, modern Greeks, the Greek Orthodox identity, the so-called uh, "room" coming from the uh, Roman, meaning the Eastern Roman Empire. That was the, the term used by the Ottoman themselves, yes. oftentimes, but also the term "zimmi," which means non-Muslim, in literally uh, in in Turkish, but in. In actual fact, the, the the term was used for the Christian Orthodox subject of the empire. Again, uh, Greeks, however, were not only. Greek Orthodox. Uh, we also have Greeks uh, in the early Greek state who were uh, Catholic uh, or who belonged to uh, other confessional groups, as well as uh, we had uh, Muslims, Turks, Turkish or Albanian Muslims who actually fought in the Greek War of Independence alongside uh, the Greeks. Isn't that interesting?
0: I want to uh, talk about Ottoman rule at that time. What did it look like and how did they govern?
2: Um the Ottomans uh it, it was a p- very crucial period for the Ottoman uh empire uh, it was a time of uh serious uh transformations uh, and the the Ottomans governed mainly through uh, an indirect system of um, governance, as much uh, as, my, uh, as far as immediate rule was concerned, at the at the uh, village or the local level, there where there was a, a quite coherent system of communal organisation, whereby local leaders would, in a way, represent the interests of the uh, community. Uh, this system of uh, representation was first and foremost based around tax collection, and that gradually included many more administrative functions.
0: So uh, it's fair to say that if you paid your taxes, you were left alone, so money rolled during that time?
2: As long as you paid your taxes, and that was the main concern of the of the Ottomans. And usually, I also think it's fair to say that the problem was less what Istanbul demanded and mm-hmm. more what intermediaries accrued in, the, in between uh, during the tax uh, collecting uh, procedure.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about Pasad, uh, him and his role in this period before the revolution between the early 19th century and
2: 1820-21? Sure. Uh, He is an emblematic figure of the time, uh, someone who has left a a very important mark uh, in the history of the region. He's typical of his time in that he is one of the very powerful local grandees, uh, magnates who managed to accumulate a lot of power and wealth and raise private armies which occasionally actually which they put those armies to the service of Istanbul of the port uh, in the in its various military campaigns and are considered extremely controversial because their personal agendas did not always. Converge with the agendas of the central Ottoman state. Uh, and it was this divergence that sometimes caused tensions between them and Istanbul. And indeed, in the case of Ali Pasha, what caused his eventual downfall. Uh, what is important about uh, Ali Pasha, however, who I also have to say was another one of the catalysts that um, created certain conditions necessary for the Greek Revolution was the fact that he unified a large area, a large region under his uh, direct or indirect control that uh, covered a big chunk of the Balkans as well as um, the Peloponnese and it was uh, this it, it was an important development that uh, was directly connected to the greek revolution to the outbreak of the greek revolution
0: adoni is there anything else you think our listeners need to know about the 1821 revolution
2: i think what's important to remember is the way that people uh, lived with each other in in a pre-modern or in an early modern society such as uh, the ottoman one uh, and indeed today as well uh, in in actual fact is that it was not only about conflict or peaceful coexistence uh, people usually imagine uh, life in the past along along those two uh, dichotomies along those two but of course, as historians, will know very well that reality is never this simple, it's never just <laughs> black or white. So what's important to remember is that there is a, a very broad range in between those two extremes that made uh, life much more uh, interesting and colourful in both negative and positive ways. So it was not just conflict or peaceful co- coexistence uh, the, the uh, everyday life took many forms and it was not simply one of uh, conflict and tension or one of uh, peace and and uh, tranquility thank you very much andon thank you so much thank you
0: this was uh, adonis Hadikiriaku, teaching fellow of ottoman and turkish history at pantheon university in athens look at the various groups involved in the Greek Revolution of 1821. Did the Greek Orthodox Church promote or endorse the revolution?
1: Well, it's interesting you would ask that because that's a popular imagination Uh, and uh, image of uh, Palom Patron Germanos, the Bishop of uh, Patras, uh, with the Greek flag blessing the revolutionaries on March 25th is probably one of the most enduring images of uh, the revolution. Uh, The Greek Orthodox Church in its uh, higher form, office, as in the Patriarch, not only would not uh, promote or endorse the Greek Revolution, it would not promote or endorse any revolution, uh, including scientific ones. I mean, there's evidence that uh, up until late 18th, early 19th century, people in the Patriarch, some at least, are very much against most of the Enlightenment, you know, science ideas that are established in Western Europe or west of Constantinople, at least, uh, but also north in places such as Russia. So the Greek uh, Orthodox Church has a lot of power in the office uh, that the patriarch holds, and be- holds because he's responsible for all the Greek Orthodox subjects of his empire. And therefore, he is also liable to any, anything that they do, Uh, including, of course, rebelling against the Sultan. So the Patriarch is uh, an office of the Ottoman Mm -hmm. uh, Empire.
0: Tell me about the people who were actually involved in this war, who actually fought, because there are two names that have come up in my reading about the revolution, and that's the Kleftes and the Armatoli. Who were they?
1: Well, there were several groups who fought in the war. We can start in this uh, episode at least to talk about two or three of them. Clefts or clefts uh, that sometimes uh, mentioned are essentially uh, groups of bandits uh, that uh, roamed the Balkan uh, countryside. There is a Serbian version called Hajduks who struck Muslims uh, and Christians uh, alike. They defied Ottoman rule, but at the same time, because of that, they were not exactly you know, the Robin Hoods of the Ottoman Empire. But nevertheless, they were highly admired. They held a quite significant place in popular imagination, uh, as evident in the many, many popular songs that glorify their acts, their honor, and their uh, role. Responding, so to speak, in this sort of gradual breaking down of law and order, of security in the uh, Ottoman countryside, the Ottomans, from uh, even from earlier on in their rule, they decided that they would appoint people uh, as militias, including Christians in many cases, who were called armatoli. So these are armed men. These were supposed to secure areas such as mountain passes and generally control the peace, but also helping tax collection. So cleftes and armatoli, they were sort of an armed provincial elite, uh, but not a class in, in themselves that they would sort of fought for a common purpose in the revolution. This actually, we'll talk about it in another episode, is seen in the fact that Civil war broke out during the revolution and many former cleftists, and Armatoly uh, were now the fighters of revolution who even turned against each other.
0: Okay, so let's elaborate on the Philikia because this is one of the very few things that have remained in my mind from my Greek school days, is this group. Tell me, who were they?
1: Well, it is also a great way to think about the Greek revolution in its more broad geographical term and get us back to this, to this time. You know, I always start telling people about the Philiketeria, that's one of the most impressive uh, things about it. It was it founded uh, not in present-day Greece, which didn't exist at the time, but in uh, Odessa, at the Black Sea uh, port of uh, Odessa, by sort of lower-class merchants, uh, three young revolutionaries, Nikolaos Koufas, Emmanuel Xanthos, and Anastasios uh, Tsakalov. In 1814, they are influenced by two groups of people, let's say, by two movements. The first one is the Italian Carbonari revolutionary movement that were also influenced by Freemason secret organization against authoritarian governments, absolutist governments at the time. The second is the influence of Greek writer and intellectual Rigas Fereus, who was also deeply influenced by the French Revolution. So the, the Felikieteria, or friendly society, begins to organize since 1814. And by 1820, there are at least a thousand members who are secretly signed up to the cause of liberating Greece from the Ottoman Empire. Now, because it was eventually a very large organization, a network of people, not everyone wanted the same thing when Greece would be liberated. Some wanted a restoration of the Byzantine Empire. Others wanted a liberal, democratic, republican uh, state. And very quickly, uh, after uh, the revolution, the uprising in the Danubian principalities broke down and was crushed. They played a minor role in the Peloponnese, but before, as a, as a form of preparation of the revolution, they were an impressive network of uh, people preparing for the for the uprising.
0: Who are the fanariotes or fanariots in English?
1: This is a good question. To answer this, we'll go to Christine Filio, professor of modern Greek and Ottoman history at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Biography of an Empire, Governing Ottomans in an Age of Revolution, and the forthcoming Turkey, a past against history. Christine, thank you. Could we uh, ask you about uh, the Fanariots, one of the key players, uh, one of the key important groups in the period before the revolution and in the Ottoman Empire more broadly?
3: Sure. Um, so the Fanariats were a group of families named Phanariot after the quarter in Istanbul, where the ecumenical patriarchate was and is still located, called the Fanar, with Fanari in Greek, Phanar in Turkish. And so they built households in close proximity, in close physical proximity to the patriarchate complex, and in close proximity politically, socially, economically, administratively to the patriarchate, they were. I call them kind of an ascendancy. They were an elite. They were also Ottoman functionaries, and this is, I think, where things get interesting um, when we need to frame the history as a nation, as you know, what role they played in the national story versus what role they were playing in the empire. They began uh, far back, 17th century, depends how we want to tell the story. Um, They bought up and um, sort of accumulated um, clerical and lay offices. So different families would sort of diversify and and be involved in commerce as well. So they accumulated capital. They um, built connections to the church and to church offices. And then they started to expand their influence into the Ottoman administration, first really on a personal basis with the Grand Viziers and the Sultans as their physicians, because Fanariats had, you know, they'd hailed from the island of Chios and which had been a Genoese colony. And so they had a tradition of sending their sons to Italy, to Padua, etc., for medical school and and other studies. And they would come back with very valuable knowledge of medicine and of European languages. And so they had knowledge that was important to the Ottoman state in the 18th century. So they sort of made headway into the upper echelons of the Ottoman administration. So they, they multifaceted enterprises <laughs> that they expanded into and by the 18th century we see them actually getting positions as hospodars or princes of Moldavia and Wallachia currently in Romania. And they replaced the native leaders of those provinces and because they were kind of a clique um, of power that was seen as more trustworthy by the Ottoman administration. So they supplanted the locals and became this kind of caste that was ruling and farming the taxes of the peasants in Moldavia and Wallachia. They also became the interpreters or the dragomans for the Ottoman sultans and viziers at the center. So they took on this role as diplomats, really, as an embryonic kind of diplomatic corps and foreign ministry, it's all. A lot of this is informal. They took on only four formal positions with the Ottoman state as dragomans and as princes. So it's a it's a complex. They were a complex elite,
0: right? And so they were an elite people that they they put themselves in that position, really. So yes. in in the context of the revolution, why did they matter? And right.
3: So they, they were this elite that was situated, and, and it's funny, looking back in, in Greek historiography, too, they were, they're, they're seen. there's a very ambivalent stance toward them in, in the Greek state and in Greek national culture and history, in that, on the one hand, they were extremely advanced, sophisticated, in touch with European ideas, in touch with actual European leaders and, and you know, visionaries. And on the other, they were Oriental, and they were the clothes of the Ottoman sultan. They wore the kaftan. They literally spoke the language of of the Orientals, and their ways were very Oriental, to use a very old-fashioned word. And their patronage networks, and they were kind of secretive, and they were... They were corrupt and they were rapacious. They were not exactly just leaders. And yet they also promulgated, you know, a law code in the principalities just before 1821 that was a replica of the Napoleonic Code. They also founded academies and educated, and they were, they were very close to the church, which we like to think the church was a beacon of light for the ethnos, right? For the for the nation in the Ottoman times, and they were an outgrowth of the church. So they are kind of disruptive for a clean national history that we'd like to have <laughs> celebrating, right? All that's good about and with the West, right? They were very much associated with the West and with the East. As I show in my book, actually, Many of them, they cleave apart in 1821. So many of them are actually leading the revolution. Ipsilantis is considered a fanariat, the Mavrogordatos. So many of them were the actual pioneers or the the vanguard of this Greek revolution. Intense relationship with the other kinds of elites and leading groups of that revolution and of the new state actually remained Ottoman loyalists even though the alternative was there, they did not choose to take it. And they actually saw the nationalists as apostates, which I know is like,
0: <laughs> so, a taboo
3: thing to say. And it's hearing you, it seems to me, and this
0: is how I'm processing this information, that they played both sides. Yes. And they were loyal to nobody, but themselves.
3: It's well that is Or well, is that
0: too simplified?
3: No, I think that's very true and I think that is in some ways the condition of minorities um, minor yeah. or non-dominant groups in empires, right? That they and, and, and it's funny because the Ottomans themselves were becoming that way in the ni- 18th and 19th century as they became in more and more of a compromised position vis-a-vis the European powers and Russia. <laughs> they played both sides. They, they allied with the Russians when they needed to. Obviously, it was unsavory for them to have to do that because they hated the Russians, but with the French and the British, and they, they played the great powers off of each other. And the fenariots were of a piece with that kind of politics, that they would play off the Ottomans, the Russians, the French, the British, local power holders, you know, and that's, it was a real kind of vernacular, real politique Right, That's how I would see it. We could trace their trajectories as the revolution unfolds. And, and to some extent, there's a game of hedging bets of mm-hmm. like, well, are we going to join this revolution? Is it going to succeed or should we even bother? We're kind of comfortable here. Because you have to understand the revolution, someone needs to have a motivation to risk everything they have, or they have to have nothing. And so nothing to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. But someone has to have some kind of motivation to get something out of just dist- of completely throwing the status quo up in the air. Right. And a lot of these guys had no interest in <laughs> being uncomfortable. They were quite comfortable where they were.
0: And we know that the other revolutionary groups uh, were Filiquieteria. There yes. were other, you know, uh, players in it. They were the cleftes and the armatoli. Now... Yes. Did these three other groups view the uh, Fenariots with distrust?
3: Yes, (laughs) I think. Okay, so they pegged them correctly
0: from the get-go. Okay, yeah,
3: there was a lot. I think there were a lot of trust issues in the early. Greek state, in the revolution (laughs) and in the early Greek state. And we see that, I mean, I'm not a specialist specialist on what happens within this embryonic Greece, because I prefer to see things from the Ottoman, from Istanbul. But I know that, you know, one of the reasons there was a, there was a short-lived Republic, right, under Kapodistrias, and it fell apart after a Mm -hmm. couple of years, because those different groups were not organically linked necessarily, right? And it kind of showed totally flies in the face of nationalist historiography but it, it shows that there it was hardly a seamless assemblage of groups that formed this new greek nation it was a very fractured and fragmented project right and the cleft i mean you can't it's hard to imagine a cleft like having a conversation with a fanariat right in mm-hmm. some ways the fanariats were much more comfortable speaking with <laughs> european leaders ottoman leaders each other right the, the ones that stayed back i mean so it it was a very uncomfortable coexistence. So
0: Christine, it's been 200 years since the revolution and outside of simply commemorating two centuries that have passed, what's the importance, what's the significance of bringing this story to the diaspora today? Really, why should we care?
3: It's a great question. In my view, as someone who has spent my career studying ottoman greek history in the context of the ottoman empire what i've learned is that the history of the greek state while fascinating is merely one <laughs> one piece and not, i'm not going to say one small piece it's a significant piece but it is one piece of a much larger and fascinating history and so watching and and that the perch that Istanbul affords, for instance, you know, very significant things happened for Greek life, Greek history, culture, economics, politics in Istanbul, which was not ever part of the modern Greek state. Likewise, here we are in North America, um, reflecting on the birth of the Greek state and many of us ancestors never lived there. (laughs) Um, So what is Hellenism what is the Greek state in the larger context of Hellenism, let's say, in the modern world? I think, that, I think that there's a lot going on to commemorate 1821 in the coming year. And from what I've seen so far, it's, it's very difficult to arrive at kind of startling new revelations when we limit our gaze to the nation state itself. <laughs> um, it's fascinating to talk about it, but also from other perspectives outside of it as well.
0: And I don't know if uh, you went to Saturday Greek school growing up in in the U.S. You refused. I didn't have a choice. So I went, but I was that kid who sat at the back and didn't listen. So this is definitely an education for me. But what I do remember was that the Greeks were the good guys and the Turks were the bad guys. Yes, It was very much through a lens of nationalistic pride. Could you speak to that, even though you didn't go to Greek school, but could you speak to why that interpretation would have been taken um, in Greek education?
3: Sure. I mean, that that is kind of classic for every nation, right? That's, that's the predicament. That's the condition of nations, really. And that's what that's what I found really frustrating with growing up. And and when I lived in Greece and I traveled to Istanbul, I started to realize all the interconnections and the complexity. And I really wanted to debunk that notion that it's an us versus them, because within us, and in fact, the, the book that is just coming out now, my second book is all about Turkey, but it's about the fissures within the Turkish us. <laughs> it's about the concept of opposition within Turkish politics and culture, right? Because they have things going on within the us and we have things going on within the us. So it's not just about, I'm not arguing that Turks are friends all the time. I think that it was very difficult to be an Orthodox Christian in the Ottoman Empire for many reasons. There was systematic exclusion and second-class citizenship. There was never any guarantee of equality until the mid-19th century. And then that was on paper and we can debate whether they (laughs) succeeded in any way in that project, but it it was not fun. That's why these Fenaria thought were so fascinating is because in the face of that kind of systemic and pretty bold discrimination, they still managed to make inroads into power. So much more complicated than us, the Greeks versus them, the Turks. Mm -hmm.
0: March twenty fifth, eighteen twenty one. It's the day we recognize as the start of the Greek Revolution. But what actually happened on that day?
1: Well, there is a great movement for uh, among for the revolution among the people who are organizing uh, already since the winter of 1820-21. The Ottoman army has campaigned against the Ali Pasha of Yanina as a sort of uh, sometimes called what is sometimes called an Ottoman civil war, and this gives a great opportunity for revolutionaries to strike in the Peloponnese. And the Peloponnese at the time is basically a string of uh, fortresses around the peninsula. So in Patras, in uh, Acrocorinthia, in Corinthos, in Nafplio, in uh, Monemvasia in the south, Kalamata, the Coronian and Methoni, and uh, Navarino in the west side of the Peloponnese. And of course the capital, Tripoli, that's where the seat of the Ottoman governor is. So what the Greeks do, first in, it seems, first in Areopoli on March 17th, according to uh, all evidence we have, is the first strike by uh, people in the area of Mani in Areopoli. So the commander of uh, Mavromichalis, a great figure in the revolution, he captured the city of Kalamata with the troops from the north of Theodoros Kolokotronis, and Kalamata fell to the Greeks on 23rd March. So there is popular imagination that some, and something probably happened in the monastery of Agia Lavra or in Patras. We're not quite sure, according to different sorts of evidence, that the Bishop Germanos blessed the revolution. But uh, the revolution had already started in these sort of uh, Mm -hmm. strikes against Ottoman forces before.
0: So there's quite a bit of lead-up time, preparation, secret preparation, in advance of the actual revolution beginning. Could you just kind of give me a timeline from the pre-revolution I guess, underground revolution to when it ended. How many years are we looking at?
1: We're looking for eight years of uh, warfare. And uh, the final agreement that ended the war, uh, then created the Greek state in its future form, was signed in 1830. So it's uh, eight to at least eight years of uh, warfare. Now, the region was engulfed by the revolution, the region of the Peloponnese, in March 1821. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's for sure. But the date of 20, March 25th was connected to the Annunciation of Virgin Mary, March 25th, which is a great event, very important uh, holy day for the Greek Orthodox Church. And the association of the Annunciation of Virgin Mary with the regeneration of the nation, we, by, by having a date fixed okay. on that, was too hard to resist. So the temptation when the Association was very, very clear And that's why the Greek state very early on in 1830s, 1838, I think King Otto decided to set the March 25th as the as the Independence Day that we all know today.
0: So it's fair to say that the state wanted to connect Greek Orthodoxy and a national identity as one to kind of solidify that as as one identity.
1: Absolutely, that's right. Any Greek or national identity is from the very beginning associated Mm -hmm. with religion. As I hope we'll have the chance to talk to in other episodes, a definition of who is a Greek citizen is only for Christians. Those are Greek citizens. So in the constitutions of the revolution and the ones that followed. So it's a very clear association of who is part of this new uh, Mm -hmm. Greek state.
0: Well, I can't wait to learn more, Sakis. This has just been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for re-educating me on the... uh Greek Revolution, and so much more to come. So much more to come. Great speaking
1: to you, Georgina, as well.
0: This podcast was produced by the Hellenic Heritage Foundation. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes for making this happen. Our researcher, Natasha Burliasko. Our editor, Stan our resident historian, Professor Sakis Gekas, and our original music composed by Dimitris Petalakis. Special thanks to our guests, historians Adonis Hadzikiriakou and Christine Filiou. Our executive producer is Sandra Gionis. Our sponsor, Agape Greek Radio. Thank you for your support. Thanks to the Greece 2021 Committee and all who fought in the Greek Revolution for inspiring us. I'm Georgia Balogianis. The idea of Greece returns in two weeks with our next installment, Not One War. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.